Welcome to another edition of the Advent Calendar version of the Coot Speed Podcast, in which Jonathan Strawn and I, I'm Gary Wolf, um, think of some of the wonderful novels and books we've read the past year and decided to simply talk to the authors of them. And today I'm delighted to have uh, Sarah Tolmy, who's uh, All the Horses of Iceland, I thought was one of the more delightful books. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you very much, Gary. And rather than try to describe this, which is you know, going to go on my year and recommended list, I'm going to let you describe what All the Horses of Iceland is, because it seems, I will tell you this, it seems like a much longer book than it is. There's a lot in it. Yes, I know. It's interesting. I'm finding that people are having no problem calling it a novel, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I mean, it's in Tor's novella imprint, you know, and it's actually showing up on lists, uh, you know, comparing it to novels, which is interesting. So I think people are getting this effect that somehow it is actually um, longer than it is. Um, what it is, mm-hmm. is a fake saga. <laughs> That's really what it is. It is a very kind of deliberately, almost as if it were a forgery kind of attempt to get that laconic, terse voice of, uh, you know, an Icelandic saga uh, across, except this time perhaps with, uh, you know, less of a sort of, we're all very familiar with, you know, any story that's Norse somehow is going to be about Viking. Right. Be about violence and, you know, spectacular, whatever, and the kind of stuff that makes it into television. Well, this is not like that at all, right? It's much closer to the sort of sort of smaller scale kind of family saga style, um, except that it does have quite a strong magical dimension. So there are several of the Norse kind of family sagas that have a lot of magic just kind of seamlessly worked into them, right? Mm-hmm. Completely as if part of the historical world, which it was, you know. So I decided that if I was going to tell this story about the origins of the Icelandic horse, that I wanted to tell it in the form of a saga. Yes. And, uh, you know, it was weird. I was at, um, in 2017, I went to the Icelandic Writers' Conference. Uh-huh. And I actually got a chance to ride an Icelandic horse briefly, you know, across one of those spectacular, you know, black, black lava. This lava flow plane. Yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah. So it was just so atmospheric that I it really stuck with me. And I mean, I had always been a horse person anyway. Mm-hmm. And then two years after that, you know, in actually in 2019, um, I was watching some random documentary on TV and they mentioned in this, uh, you know, a documentary on Icelandic horses that there is good genetic evidence that the horses are related originally to the horses of the, uh, of the Central Asian steppe, Uh Mongolian wild horses. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what a story that would make, wouldn't it? You know? And as soon as I had that little, you know, thing in my brain, I sort of realized that this was the opportunity to write the kind of pretend saga, pseudo saga, you know, that the medievalist in me had always wanted to write. There was the story material. Um, so that's what I did. So I, I take Well, one of the interesting narrative choices that you made, though, is that this is actually yeah. related to us by a Christian monk some three centuries later. Indeed. So it has this kind of medieval, uh, I don't know, uh, journey tale wonder tale so i guess they yes. call it um, yes and and that, that was that a way of distancing it because i think if i'm not mistaken i think you avoid 
even using the word Viking in the novel. I do not use the word Viking any more than I use the word shaman. Uh-huh. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah, I, I, both of which are words I think we're all getting kind of tired of and that are often used very irresponsibly, in my opinion. So I talk about magicians, which is what they are. <laughs> uh, and I mean, Avend, my, my kind of laconic Norse protagonist, is a trader. That's what he is. That's what he's up for. He's out to make money. And so he, you know, he, he goes from Iceland, from his, you know, tiny little community speaking only Icelandic, gets up to the north of Scandinavia, goes kind of across the top of it, and then down through Kievan Rus and ends up in Central Asia, all the time, utterly mystified by all the languages that people are speaking around him and realizing, you know, what a rube he really is, <laughs> you know, and then just having to simply ad lib his way. Um, along the Volga River trade route um, and out into, um, well, you know, into, into central Mongolia with a group of, uh, of Turkic traders that he hooks up with in Helmgard. Um, and then he, you know, gets himself out there and he, he again, uh, sort of finds unexpectedly that he is called upon to kind of make an intervention into the local uh, Mongolian you know, uh, camp culture and it's Khan, which he did not ever expect to have to do, but it's being haunted and Mm -hmm. haunted by a very persistent and troublesome ghost. Uh, And he has, you know, a kind of Norse magical recipe that, you know, he happened to know was applied usefully a couple of times in his community. So he brings it to that context and does it there. Um, And to everybody's surprise, it works <laughs> and he becomes a, a bit of a local hero. Uh, yeah, and he's, then, he's a fascinating character. He's not quite a con man, but when no. he has to be, he can act like one. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, he is, I think a really like one of those kind of, as you know, kind of mid range, mid social class kind of, you know, middle management uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, kind, kind of people, you know, so he's not, uh, you know, he's not a gothi or, uh, you know, uh, you know, a named person from a big landowning family kind of thing. He really is a, a sort of fairly modest trader, you know, who puts a little bit of money down into his voyage, kind of buys his way onto the boat, you know, like everybody else, and hopes to realize, you know, uh, a profit. And uh, yes, so, you know, I, I've always loved Norse things. Um, although it is not at all my actual area of specialty as a scholar, uh, so, which is, I think, in some ways a good thing. Sometimes you can become dreadfully pedantic if you're covering your own ground. So I, I assiduously avoid the 14th and 15th centuries, which are kind of, you know, I'm a Middle English scholar, really. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> well, one of the things that fascinated me about that, oh, but before I get into that, I want to come yeah. back to that. The other character who is absolutely fascinating to me is David. He has a kind yes. of Jewish, uh, very, well, speaking of being pedantic, I guess. <laughs> this is a guy who wants to tell him how to do everything. Um, and yes. is, I, I, I don't know, there's a, there's a picaresque quality to this with all mm-hmm. the characters he runs across. You write the side adventures. The ghost story of the haunted family is a pretty good standalone ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they're... There also are these kind of embedded tales and implied tales and this sort of thing, which yes. may give the sense to get back to what you were saying earlier about it's people seeing it as a novel. It seems mm-hmm. like there's a lot of stuff going on, not all of which we learn about because yes. not 
all of which Avon learns about. And, yes. and, and uh, in addition to all that, we have this character, Jor, the, the, the monk who's telling it, wondering how reliable he is because he's really, for example, the actual narrator is really upset that Avon won't convert to Christianity early in the novel, which is one of the things that sets him off on this whole adventure. Yes, indeed. So, I mean, it is, in fact, fairly typical of Norse sagas that, you know, we encounter them because they were written down and they were often written down a century or two after their oral composition. Some of them clearly did travel as oral compositions for some time, you know, and then they are indeed, especially the stuff that has to do with the mythological material, you know. So it is always, in fact, kind of coming at us in the literate world through this Christian filter of several centuries later, typically. So Yor is like that. He is sort of, in some respects, in some sagas, that that narrator is invisible. Like we don't actually learn a name or hear anything about him. But this time I thought, I think I do need to hear from him and I need him to chime in from time to time because we are dealing with this pagan story from the period of the settlement. And I really did want to give it that kind of... um, Sort of, uh, you know, well, again, multi-layered, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actually saga-like sense, historical sense of a document coming into being before you. And I mean, in so many ways, the story itself, right, is a kind of meta-narrative. It's about how the document that we read that Jor writes down in Icelandic at Skalholt, in you know, is is born. And it, we know that that uh, you know that that Avend actually comes back from Mongolia cherishing this small scroll, even though he himself cannot read it. And we have this story of how it is originally written down in the Mongolian language, but, you know, with a a Turkic script. And then it is translated by the handy dandy Greek scholar whom they meet (laughs) on the boat and he glosses it. And then somebody who later, obviously, probably in Iceland, glosses it in Latin, which is what York can read. you know, so we have the story of the coming together of that book, and it's magic. You know, it's magical mm-hmm. status. Well, um, one of the arguments like, that uh, I mean, this is fascinating about, I, I was I was saying just before we started recording, this seems to have been a really good year for historical fantasies with yours and Nicola Griffiths and Guy Gabriel Kay having another major novel. Uh, yep. And you all have different approaches, except... Uh, there's one thing that seems to be in, co- in common, and it's a comment that I know Gene Wolfe made many years ago when he was writing his Soldier of Sidon novels, that if you're writing about a culture in which magic is real, then magic is real within the story you're telling. Mm-hmm, exactly. I mean, and it absolutely is and was in the saga world. So, I mean, in some respects, like if you really do set out sort of rhetorically to write a saga, then magic is simply going to be part of that. It's not some sort of additional thing. And it's not... You know, in, in to some respects, you know, what it means is this book is actually straight up historical fiction, right? right? Because to them, uh, you know, the the uh, magical operations fit in seamlessly with all the other cause and effect of their world, you know. And and certainly Avend, you know, he's a very low-key sort of guy and he's not super committed to no bangs or flashes or wands or uh, you know, spells. Um, he has a very practical sort of, okay, well, we've tried every other thing to resolve this social situation, right? That's what a haunting is. Like the ghost is a member of the community who's out of line. <laughs> and we need we need to get that person back in line. Like what they mostly do in Iceland, bless them, it's just, it's great, right? Is they sue them. Oh, really? They, yes. So there's actually, you know, he threatens the ghosts, remember at the end of the story, the ones who are haunting his bathhouse? 
he threatens them with a door court. Ah. Well, a door court is a real thing. Oh, really? And, yes, I... and they actually did hold a number of them and prosecute ghosts for trespass. Really? That's... Yes. There's a good comedy in there somewhere, I think. Yeah, well, isn't there just, oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, you know. Um, so, yes, uh, so there is just a very kind of practical-minded, everything is continuous. You know, there's the law, and indeed these, these magical operations are still part of the law, you know. And, uh, you know, he takes that line. So in many respects, if you're, again, you know, if it is a saga, it's a, it's a straight-up historical fiction with the magic included. Right. Let me go on to one of the questions that we promised to ask everybody on this. What are yes, you reading? Yes. What are you reading these days? What am I reading? Well, you know, the the book that I read this year that really uh, was totally galvanizing, actually, um, is Helen Marshall's collection of short fiction, "The Gold Leaf Executions." Did you hmm. read that? I know, it's but fabulous. I know Helen, so I'm, I'm I'm very curious about it now. Yes. So it uh, apparently it actually saw the light of day in October. Um, but I was, uh, she contacted me a couple of months prior because she wanted a blurb for it. So I read it in manuscript to blurb it. And I must say, I mean, I've always, I'm a huge fan of Helen's period mm. all the time. <laughs> but this particular book is a, it's like a good, like decades worth of short fiction. So it, it, it's really covering the ground of her career kind of over the last decade. Um, and they, what they really sh- sort of did for me is they, they really show um, a sort of a writer writing. I mean, her, her writing is very beautifully kind of technique-y. Uh, but it is, they're, they're also quite contemporary and autobiographical. And there are sort of various learned protagonists, you know, throughout the thing, you know, contending with various different, rather spooky plots that they get themselves into, you know. And there was just something about it which hit me at exactly the right time, I think, in, again, in that sort of spooky, very far inside your own head, COVID right. world, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I read it and it almost immediately made me start writing stories that were almost like ripostes or continuations, you know, of it. Um, and I, you know, so I now I have a whole new volume of these uh, stories, which will be, yeah, coming out uh, with Aqueduct Press in, uh, in July. Uh, and it's called uh, Sacraments for the Unfit. Um, and you know, for the first time I allowed myself to be autobiographical, which I've never done in any way. Uh, and it was like Helen opened that door for me somehow. It was kind of amazing. Um, so I, you know, this is sort of my COVID book and it is about various kind of, you know, I think the ritualist in us all was really brought out by COVID. And I believe sort of, I've always been fascinated by rituals anyway, but Mm -hmm. this whole book is a kind of a collection of people um, and other beings um, enacting kind of their daily rituals, uh, often in in kind of quasi-isolated or fully isolated uh, circumstances. Yeah, that makes sense given that. Yeah. So I didn't, again, I was only after I'd finished it that I realized, oh, this is my COVID book. You know, um, and it was entirely um, spawned, you know, just by by reading Helen's work. That's so, great. and that yeah. answers another question I had, which is what what we what, what we look forward to again from from you for the. This coming. is in the pipeline. It will it will definitely be out. We have in fact just chosen the cover image and stuff, so it should. In fact, as soon as I've got the cover image finalized, I'll put a little blurb on my website so that there will actually be an official "it is coming" uh, thing for it. 
Um, and, and, and actually also vis-a-vis what have I been reading Yes. in conversation with Helen about her book, she uh, put me on to the work of M. John Harrison, which somehow I had missed. I mean, yeah. I don't know how this now this seems like retrospectively incredible. Like, how could I have missed somebody that important? But um, so I'd be mean, almost at random. I, I hit upon um, the sunken land begins to rise again. As the latest Which one. Is, oh, it's just a masterpiece. You know, yeah. it's wonderful. I mean, everything that everybody says about the quality of that man's prose is true. It's just artful, you know, and it's the most interesting book about Brexit that you're ever going to read. Ooh, yeah. Well, you know, it's just absolutely fantastic. So that too was in my brain as I was writing this collection of short fiction. And I think there was a slight M. John Harrison cast you know, to to some of it uh, for that reason. But uh, so I was very late to that party, I have to mm. say. But wow, uh, what a wonderful book. Yeah, all of his short, I mean, his, his science fiction is conceptually bizarre and fascinating. But Mm -hmm. I I tend to like uh, some of his more recent things. There was a big collection, a retrospective collection of stories that came out a year or so ago. Yes, which I haven't seen, uh, and I want to. The thing that will strike you as as, as being strange, especially starting with something like um, The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, is that he's been that good for decades. Yes, yes, (laughs) evidently, yeah. Exactly. Well, I know. I mean, China Mieville, you know, is, is a, you know a huge fan, evidently, and has been singing his praises for ages. And I, I guess, I finally listened. Or, you know, but uh, yes. Um, anyway, what a master, you know. So now I can read all of it right over the next several years, and this will make me very happy. Uh, just you know that that yeah, the quality of conception, the quality of execution, just so completely not you know B list schlocky. No, no, no. Just you know. High art, literary writing, fantastic. But so really, uh, yeah. really readable, and then the sense of the, the, the sense of just this country falling around, literally falling apart. Yes, yeah, literally falling. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the the, the creepy evocations of that uh, that that Victorian, um, uh, you know, YA kind of book, which oh, I've forgotten which one it is now. Oh, the water babies. Yeah, the water, the water babies. babies. It's this sort of fetishy thing right throughout. The I went back and looked at the water babies. I did too. <laughs> oh God, it's insane. My dad said that he actually read it as a kid, oh, and yeah. um, and he saw the illustrations of the water babies with their gills in their necks. My dad is a painter. Ah, and okay. He said that those you know those illustrations stuck with him for years. I would imagine. Yeah, and were probably formative on like early line drawings and stuff of his. So there was this weird little six degrees of separation thing with the water babies. <laughs> One other question, which you don't have to answer if you don't have an answer for it, is: Are, are there? It's the season of the year. We're calling this an Advent calendar, even though none right. of us are religious. Are, are there seasonal books that you return to, or that you voice upon other people that you think of as this time of year? Um, well. Interestingly, right now it's actually it's less books than podcasts. Okay. So what? Again, over the COVID period, I uh, in that first year of it, more or less, I was suffering from some serious vision loss. So I was actually having a great deal of trouble reading, and I started to listen to audiobooks and to various different kinds of, of you know oral media, um, and I fell across a couple of podcasts that I've become you know, quite attached to. And one of them is, um, is Tony Walker's classic ghost stories. 
And he has all, a kind of long and interesting collection of Christmas ghost stories, some of which are Victorian, some of which are sort of, you know, classic early 20th century um, Christmas ghost stories. So um, I actually have been listening to those like kind of on repeat, <laughs> you know, um, assorted different ones. He also has a whole uh, quite nice recording of um, uh, of a Christmas carol. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, well, so if you happen know, to... I don't know if I can take another Christmas carol. <laughs> yes, well, so I wouldn't necessarily start with that. Right. But there are lots of other, you know, shorter ones that are kind of a half-hour investment of your time, 25 minutes. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're really enjoyable and, uh, you know, very seasonal and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, in terms of sort of Christmassy stuff, I would say that is where my attention has mostly been. Um, uh, and I, I do recommend them uh, very much to anybody else who, who likes that, uh, you know, the Christmas ghost type story. I, I do. I, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Before yeah. I let you go, though, I want to go back and uh, put a little plug in for the little animals. Uh, yes. Which, Good. Well, that, was, that was an aqueduct book also, wasn't it? It uh, was. It was indeed, yes. And it's uh, for people who, uh, it's, it's a wonderful What's a wonderful combination of science fiction, and f of science history and fantasy, I guess. The mm. history of microscopy and Leeuwenhoek. And, and we, there are two, two questions I have about it. One is, yes. is there any evidence that Leeuwenhoek actually knew Vermeer? Mm, well, he did know him because he actually was the executor of his will. Oh, okay. So that, that definitely is the case. Uh, so they definitely were personally acquainted. Um, and everybody has been endlessly debating to what extent, yeah, you know, yeah, were yeah, they? Yeah. And yada, yada, yada. But I mean, you know, Delft, it's not a big town even now, and it wasn't terribly big then. Uh, and, you know, the middle class did all know one another, the kind of professional classes. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's pretty plausible, let's say. Okay. The other question is, this has to, you, you have an amazing blurb for this book from Ursula Le Guin. Which yes. is a Just before she died. You know she read the thing in detail. It was not a generic she did. blurb. And it oh, I know. It had to be one of the last blurbs she gave. I think it probably was the very last. I actually have her. She commented on the manuscript. Mm -hmm. So I actually have. I have several pages of her manuscript commentary framed wow. in my study. Because yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. Ursula. I mean, you know, she, you know, she is uh, always been the kind of be all and end all of, of, uh, well, I mean, indeed, of, of American writers or American writers living while I was living, <laughs> you know, for to me. So, uh, yeah, to be able to have her uh, do that for me. She also blurbed the Stone Boatman, my my very first book, and was utterly instrumental actually in in getting it published at all. Um, I had been kind of slaving away trying to get that my you know that dreadful moment when you're trying to market your first novel right it's a, it's a terrible and very long lasting moment for most of us so you know i had spent 18 months you know shilling that thing everywhere on god's earth and just getting nowhere and finally i was just so depressed with the whole business that i thought you know what the one human being on the earth that i want to read this book is ursula and at the end of the day i will I will consider this book a success if she alone reads it. And I sent it to her. I just upped and sent it to her, like cold called her basically with wow. this manuscript. Yes. And, and she read it and she wrote back to me several months later saying, I, I, I read your book on the beach with my family and, 
you know, I w- I was being crushed by the heavy Sirlock's binding and, you know, whatever. And, and she recommended Aqueduct Press to me as a, a press that she had worked with locally, uh-huh. who had published several of her collection, you know, essay yeah. collections and how-to books and whatever. So it was entirely her doing. <laughs> that that book ever saw print and that formed my relationship with Aqueduct that I've Aqueduct had ever since. And, and, uh, and it was a finalist for the Crawford Award that year as well. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. so, so with three novels, yeah. and, and you've also got volumes of poems and uh, yes. that, uh, or some, one, one or more of those may have been Aqueduct too also. No, Aqueduct has only published, uh, they've published novels and uh, novella collections and fiction collections. Like so I, I did publish... Poems, but with uh, Queen's University Press here in Canada. Ah, okay. So that's a kind of a completely separate deal, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that curious way that the poetry worlds and the prose fiction worlds are still weirdly separate. You know, yeah. the, the audiences barely speak to one another. The reviewers do not review across platforms. It's just crazy, the two solitudes that persist there. So I'm basically two different people in that <laughs> regard. Like, oh, there's Sarah Tolmy, you know, the poet. Oh, there's Sarah Tolmy, you know, like the speculative fiction writer. And they just never, <laughs> they never cross paths. Yeah, there are a few people who have been trying to bridge them. I mean, Fran Wilde is another one who writes very good poetry. And and she's always trying to bring people together at conventions. And she and I will get together and talk about John Berryman or Anne Sexton. And, and then she'll turn around and talk to somebody about, you know, whatever uh, science fiction they've been reading. So, but, yes. but, but they're... There's more connection now than there might have been 10 years ago. Yes, I do think that is the case, actually. Um, You know, to some extent, those lines are softening a little bit. And I mean, you do see poems in many of the SF magazines, uh, you know, now in one way, shape or form and, you know, whatever. But uh, but actually, when Ursula died, I wrote an elegy for her, um, you know, an actual poetic elegy called Ursula Le Guin in the Underworld. And it was published in OnSpec the Canadian mm-hmm. magazine, and then it won an Aurora and it won the Riesling award, the long poem right, award. Right. So that was, you know, my, my last kind of, you know, gift to her and her, her legacy. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, again, uh, one of the few moments where I actually have got my sort of like SFF life and my poet life to actually converge. <laughs> Wonderful. So. Now give us a title of the collection that's coming out next year from it is going to be called Sacraments for the Unfit. Okay, that's a great and title. And it has, uh, has several human protagonists going through their kind of daily rituals. There's a woman who um, gets into some kind of mystical business with a sort of a, um, a kind of backyard deity uh, in her own house. There's an angel who kind of outlived the... A uh, whole apparatus of uh, angelology, mm-hmm. but you know, is, is still stuck interviewing goats and just <laughs> trying to be a, a witness to the divine in everything, you know. And uh, yes, so it's a very um, a, a kind of mixed bag of different people, all in some respects contending with ritualism and and isolation. Okay, it's a dark comedy kind of thing. Um, several of the stories are actually quite funny in a, in a bleak way. <laughs> well, that's appropriate for the age, I think. To some extent, I think so. It, it certainly spoke to uh, that, that immediate kind of, well, that, the, the COVIDian right. isolation, you know, that we were all in there. Will we be talking about this as the COVIDian era? Sounds, I don't know. I've often wondered. I mean, theological, I, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. You know, yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, am I the only person who says COVIDian? It seems so utterly natural to me that I've just been saying it and people do, they, they understand. So I feel that, you know, the word has somehow entered the language. Uh, <laughs> you know. Well, we'll be looking forward to your collection. And I want to very much thank you for joining us uh, um, again. It's it's been a pleasure and it's nice to be part of, well, anything having to do with Advent and Advent calendars yes. is great. And, uh, you know, just to, 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 uh, yeah, to participate in this, uh, you know, I mean, what is it? 600 plus episodes now. So this is, uh, yeah, we'll send you, we'll let you know exactly when it comes up, but yeah, you're 604 or 602 or something. Yeah, I don't know. Great. That's some longevity. <laughs> and we'll talk again sometime then. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it was lovely to talk to you and uh, happy holidays. Happy holidays and, to you. Yes. Until All the right. next time then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.